0: Are you glad you're here today? Amen? Amen? I'm glad you're here as well. To sue or not to sue? Now, the sue is not the name of a lady, all right? Is that a legitimate question for a Christian to ask? Our exposition of 1 Corinthians brings us to a very interesting and relevant topic. And that is a topic of suing. And to be very specific, suing between professing Christians. Now remember, this teaching comes on the heels on continuation of Paul's forceful admonition to the Corinthians in chapter 5 of this epistle to excommunicate, an unrepentant professing believer from the fellowship of God's people as an act of discipline that would help to maintain the purity and holiness of the church of Jesus Christ, which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This led, of course, into a four-message exposition excursus on the topic of church discipline. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians continues With the issue of how believers are to deal with disputes between themselves. It's a continuation. But before we get on to the topic from the scripture itself. Let's look at a definition of what it means to sue. Or the actual word is suit. From a legal perspective. Here's some definitions I came across. First. To file a legal action against someone, generally a non-criminal action. Now I want to emphasize that point. The issues that we will be talking about here concerning uh, issues between Christians have to do with non-criminal activities or actions. Criminal things we have no question about, right? But we're talking about Non criminal action. To seek by request, to make application, to petition, to entreat, to plead, to bring legal action against a person, a company, or other entity by filing a lawsuit. Now here's another one, and this is the one I want us to look at because it's probably more understood by us. To seek justice. It's the point I want to underline. The object of of a suit to suing someone is to satisfy justice. To seek justice or right from a person by legal process. Specifically, to bring an action against. But actually, as I studied this through some of the law information that was passed on to me by a friend here, is that uh, really the suit isn't completed until the action has been completed. Until then, it is only an action that has been moved or made to bring an action against, to proceed with and follow up a legal action to proper termination. So this is what we are going to be talking about today and not because I want to talk about it, because, but because it's the next subject in the book that we are looking at from scripture but now to put things into a local context and to show the relevancy of the subject i've asked mr brian marie qc to describe for us the prevalence of suing in the bahamas and as you can see he's more than qualified to do so he's a senior partner of mckinney bancroft and hughes any particular areas of expertise, commercial litigation, liquidations, insolvency, insurance, bankruptcy, I hope I never see you, <laughs> banking, law, mergers and acquisitions. Mr. Marie has acted as a stipendary and circuit magistrate and a judge of the Supreme Court of the Bahamas. So if anybody can give us some solid information
1: to this young man. <laughs> Mr. Marie. Pastor just asked me to give a very short <coughs> overview of, of um, the subject from my perspective as one who is a practicing lawyer, and I think I'd just like to make three or four quick points. Um, there's no question that we here in the Bahamas, together with most other countries, uh, are facing a proliferation in what we call private litigation, which is really the, the process by which people sue other people for any, any number of reasons. That could include a commercial dispute, a business dispute, it could include a contract dispute uh, between persons, it could include a family or domestic dispute, but the reality is that our court system, as is the case with most court systems in other parts of the world, simply cannot keep pace with the volume of lawsuits that are being filed. Um, just to give you an example, in the latest statistics that I could come across um, were the statistics for, ni- for 2007. Um, so they're a couple of years old. But in 2007, there were 1,469 lawsuits filed uh, in that calendar year um, in the commercial and civil division of the courts. In the family division, where there are family disputes, could be domestic violence disputes, could be disputes over children, custody. There was 1,401 lawsuits filed in 2007. Um, Those statistics have been steadily increasing. Now, they don't involve, or those numbers do not take into consideration those lawsuits which were there from previous years. And the average life of a lawsuit, if there is such a thing, because many of them are different but the average life of a lawsuit from start to finish is somewhere between 3 and 4 years um, to get it through the court system so what you can just just think about this for a moment uh, and you'll see the compounding effect of the statistics so if you take as a as a snapshot 2007 and we had between the family division and the civil and commercial court We had basically 2,900 new cases started in that one 12-month period. Now in order for most of those to get through the system, they're going to be in the system for another three or four years. So 2008, one would see numbers which would would be probably in the range of 1,600, 1,700 new cases. You've already got in 2007 your 2,800 cases, so you, you see what I'm saying? And you go back here, you know, to 2006 and 2007, 2005. So, if you were to ask what, at any point in time, what's the number of lawsuits, and I'm not talking about criminal cases at all. Now, I'm talking about civil, commercial, business, and family. Uh, you, you are talking probably uh, statistics, which, which, in terms of what's in the system at any point in time, figures somewhere between 15 and 20,000 cases. Um, <clears throat> now. What is the prospect? Let me tell you what the resources are. We have 11 judges in the Bahamas. All right. Uh, they sit five days a week. At any given time, at least four of those judges are doing criminal cases. Uh, five days a week. So they don't, they don't do any civil cases at all. So you take four away. That leaves us with seven judges. Um, two of those judges really deal with what we call interlocutory matters. That's to say chamber matters which is disputes that you have to resolve on your way to trial, but not the trial itself, all right? So those two judges, and there are literally thousands of those which are filed every year. So two judges are committed to to deal with those matters, so that takes you down to five judges. And of those five judges, one is the Chief Justice, right, who doesn't really, can't carry a heavy load because he's got a lot of administration, he deals with all the probate matters. So you're really down to three or four judges trying to clear out this system of of 15,000, 20,000 cases. Um, And you can see that it just isn't gonna work. Um, Now this is a a phenomena which is not exclusive to the Bahamas. Um, This is seen all over the Western world where the court systems are being outpaced by the volume of litigation that is being filed, all the way from the small stuff to the very major stuff. Uh, And it does seem that in our secular world, we have lost the ability to to resolve disputes between ourselves, and and the ability to 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 put in place a dispute resolution mechanism, which does not involve court, is now become a major concern of the national government. Um, and I was indicating to Pastor very briefly uh, what the what the strategy now is is to introduce something which is known as ADR. Some of you may have heard about that. It's called, it's known, it's called ADR. It stands for Alternate Dispute Resolution. And ADR comprises of three different processes. One, mediation. Two, conciliation. And three, arbitration. And through those, through that, through that package of alternative methods of resolving disputes, the courts are trying to introduce a filter in order to to reduce the number of cases that has to go through the court system. So it's trying to pick off, right, at least 30 to 40% of these statistics that I gave you that could be resolved through an ADR mechanism so they never have to go to the court because the courts just can't get to them. And I'm afraid, you know, that's the world we live in today and that is symbolic of, of what's happening certainly within our secular society. Um, litigation is is a is a very lucrative area of the law for lawyers one can't deny that um, because of the great volume of cases that that, that seems to come along on a, on a on a on an annual basis I must say that there is no discernible trend that I and others can see which would suggest that these numbers are going to be reducing uh, in the short term there's simply no discernible trend to see that if anything the numbers are increasing. Um, and as I said, the, the, the one issue which we cannot deny is that we as individuals, um, even before you get to the subject of Christian, suing a Christian, which I think is the focus of, of Pastor's <coughs> message today, but even before you get to that group, we, we have lost our ability to resolve disputes between us. Um, And that is why people are resorting to the courts, um, because they don't seem to be able, they they, they either don't have the skill, the inclination, uh, the, the knowledge or the ability to sit down and resolve disputes in a manner other than through the official court system. And it is creating a major problem for us, because you simply do not have the resources to continue to absorb uh, anywhere from 1500 to 1800 new cases a year when it's taken you five, four, five years to clear out the cases before. And so the trend is only going one way. You don't have enough judges. You don't have enough courtrooms. Um, and, and even though, and this is, this is the, the ironic thing which I'll leave you with because litigation, anybody who's been involved in it, either as a participant or if you're involved in it as a professional, if anything, it's two things. It's expensive and it's slow. Right? Now, you would have thought that those two factors would be a disincentive for people to litigate. Right? But notwithstanding that fact, notwithstanding that it is expensive, and notwithstanding that it is slow, the numbers continue to increase. Um, which, which really, I think does pose some serious questions that one could ask about this. Um, so the, the message to me is a very timely one. Um, I, can, I can tell you that certainly on the family side, anybody who's been involved in a family dispute will know that solving it through the court system is a wholly inadequate way. I don't know a single judge who sits in the family division that would tell you that the best way to resolve a family dispute, right, particularly with regard to children is to go into a public environment, file a bunch of documents, go to a man or woman you've never met in your life, all right, give them three hours, and they're gonna decide what happens to the child. All right, and that's the way the court system resolves custody disputes, right? This doesn't make any sense at all. Yet, the trend continues to be that that more and more parents are finding it (coughs) impossible to resolve these disputes by themselves, And so they end up going to court, right, to a very imperfect system, right, which can in no real sense, right, produce uh, justice on a consistent level because the presiding judge just does not have the time, right, or the resources to investigate the circumstances of that family in sufficient detail to really make an informed decision. Uh, And so they do the best that they can, um, and one would have thought that, 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 that parents would find a better way of trying to resolve the disputes. Um, so the only hope on the, on, the, on the horizon in terms of controlling these numbers is to, to, to work with this ADR system, this alternative dispute resolution system, and to encourage persons right, to use mediation or conciliation or arbitration as a means of resolving their disputes in a more effective way. And certainly, with regard to the church, I think the pastor will be saying a little bit more about that. Um, so I'm afraid it's not very good news. Um, we are a very litigious people. That's the fact of the matter. The influence of the United States of America in this sense has been profound. Um, you know, Those of you who are old enough to go back to the 60s and the 70s, I think you would agree um, that people, you, know, you had a problem, you didn't issue a writ. You, know, you didn't whip out a writ and serve it. Right, there are other ways of trying to resolve your dispute. Today, issuing a writ, which is the way you start a lawsuit, right, seems to be the first alternative, not the last alternative. Uh, because we become a very litigious people through the influences of North America. And I, and I think that, that we have to be very careful that within the Christian community, uh, we don't <coughs> mirror this trend which is happening within the secular community. And this is an area like in so many areas where we are called upon to be the salt or the light. And there should be a point of distinction between the way in which Christians resolve disputes and the way in which the secular world does. Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Your Worship. (laughs) Your Honor. Thank you. I think that gives us a tremendous setting for this biblical issue that we're going to be looking at today. We'll be making reference to a lot of things that Mr. Marie has said. Um, we want to look at Scripture to see if the believer can help alleviate this problem. All right. So I want you to take your Bibles, please, and now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here then is our question again for this morning should a christian sue another christian with whom he or she may have a dispute the apostle paul answers this question very definitively i believe in first corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 so let's begin our exposition of this passage that i believe unfortunately so many christians seem to ignore or at least they are unaware of. Remember, again, Paul in chapter 5 has just concluded talking about the need of believers to deal in a spiritual and Christ-like way in dealing with a member of the church who has sinned and who refused to be reconciled with the leadership of the church by refusing counseling, and so they had to be excommunicated. In other words... The dispute was not uh, satisfied properly. This chapter, 6, is actually a continuation of that teaching and reinforces the apostles' teaching that the church must be able to care for its own problems without the unsaved when it comes to dealing with disputes between professing believers. Paul is very clear on that. There's no reason why a believer should have a problem between another believer solved by an unbeliever. That's the bottom line. So here's the presenting problem, as I like to call it. Verse one, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, how dare you file a lawsuit? And ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers. As I say, I call this the presenting problem. And Paul lays out all the facts in this out, in this opening statement of what he's going to say. To broaden what he's saying is secular courts should not be the arbitrators of disputes between Christians. Or to broaden the principle, non-Christians should not be the arbitrators of disputes between Christians. To put it even more simply, Christians are to settle their own disputes. That's the bottom line. Now, Paul gives two alternatives and reasons for each of them in this passage. The first alternative he gives in dealing with disputes with believers, one with another, is that you settle it among yourselves. The first reason he gives for others in verse 2. Don't you realize? The King James Version says don't you know? And as we're going to see this is one of six instances where Paul makes this statement. "Don't Don't you know? 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 Don't you realize? In other words he's saying, hey believers you should know this. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? In other words, Paul is saying, Christians are destined to judge all non-Christians. Can't we judge ourselves now? That's his argument. If you're destined to this greater thing, can't you do the lesser while you wait to do it? The implication is, yes, you can, we're able to do it, and we should do it. In fact, we must do it if we are to truly reflect that we are Christ-like as we claim to be. And so Paul continues to say, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, don't you realize? Paul assumes that they do, or at least they should know this truth. He must have taught them this already. Don't you know, don't you know who you are, is what he's saying. Why are you behaving like those who you are not? Then he gives a second reason in verse 3. Don't you realize, don't you know that we will judge angels? So he goes from the non-spiritual to the spiritual world. Material to the spiritual. Don't you know, don't you realize that we will judge angels? So, you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Power phrase. we could put it this way. Since Christians are destined to judge spiritual beings in the future, surely we have the ability to judge natural or spiritual things now in the present. That's the argument. Notice the phrase again. Don't you realize? He continues to ask this. Christians should know this. His whole point is, you're acting contrary to who you are and what you know. They are not living out the truth that they profess to know. They are not being who they are. They are saying one thing but living another way. Paul is assuming that when they know doctrine, that doctrine should guide and shape their behavior because right doctrine leads to right living, or should lead to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. Yet these Corinthians had the right doctrine, but they were still living the wrong way. They were lying against the truth, as Paul says elsewhere. But now I want you to consider the fantastic statement behind this truth here. The scriptures tell us that it is Jesus Christ who will judge the world, an angel. Isn't it right? It's Jesus Christ. But here Paul tells us, we're going to do it. This shows us our close identity with Jesus Christ. Not only are we united with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection, we are also united with him in his reign over his kingdom. And so when he is going to judge we are going to judge with him should we act right now according to what god has destined for us paul is saying my goodness you guys you corinthians live like the people you are in christ You are in him. You are united with him. You're going to be judges of the world. You're going to be judges of the angelic kingdom. Good gracious, he says. Why do you have to have an unsaved person who does not have the spirit of God living within him judge spiritual issues in your life? Don't you know any better? Now to reinforce his point even further, as though he needs to, he takes something else to explain before these people. He gives a third reason why believers should not take another believer before a civil court outside the fellowship of the church to settle disputes. Look at what he says in verse 4. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church. I am saying this to shame you. Paul was a bold preacher in Pull and Punches. I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers that's the Word of God as I always remind you I didn't write this last night in a word the Apostle inspired by the Spirit of God is saying it is a disgrace for a Christian to be publicly judged by a person they regard as being non-Christian that's what he's saying it is a disgrace Now, when Paul alludes to judges who are not respected by the church, he means that the church do not, or at least should not, consider the opinion of a civil court of higher value or regard concerning spiritual matters than the church. He is not in any way demeaning civil or secular secular courts. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, he commands that we obey and respect them. So, he's not talking about that area. Here, he's talking about these courts making decisions on spiritual matters concerning two believers. For a Christian, Paul says, to take another Christian before civil or secular judges who do not have the Spirit of God living within them to determine a matter between two Christians who do have the Spirit of God living within them is it as grace? It is as grace to God? Is it as grace to the Christian? And it is a disgrace before angels as well. It is a disgrace before the unsaved. But secondly, Paul says, a qualified Christian is available to do this job. Use him. There are wise people, spiritual people within the church of Jesus Christ who can decide these issues. Why go outside? But then Paul gives a second alternative to dealing with this issue. One that hits at the very heart and core of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. This is a tough one. This is what I call alternative number two. And he says in this part, take the loss rather than sue. (laughs) Reason number one for this, verse 7. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Paul is saying, just to institute it, to instigate it, you've lost before you start. That's what he's saying to the Christian who initiates a lawsuit. You've already lost. In other words, he's saying in the context of our passage, as a Christian, you lose by simply going before a carnal court, taking out a writ against another one, believer. You shame yourself before man, before God, and before angels. Now, I don't know how much clearer he can be. And why Christians really have to ask the question in the first place. Should I sue a believer? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3 concerning angels and God's great plan concerning the church. He says to bring to light, talking about his responsibility as an apostle to the church, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Talking about the church now. The birth, the creation of a church. So that, here is the reason why the church was brought into existence. According to this passage of Ephesians 3. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you get this? One of the core reasons, purposes for the birth of the church is that the wisdom of God might be shown to the angelic world. But now Paul is saying here that by our actions we can cause God to look like a fool. This is an amazing revelation. The church, the individual believer, can make God look like a wise God or like a fool by the way we live and what we do. If we choose to abandon his directions and go our way, then we make God be a foolish God before angelic beings. As though he made a mistake in giving birth to the church. Angels, (laughs) look at there. You wise God. Look at those foolish people down there. You tell them how to live but they've rejected that and they're going to go their own way. By the way, Satan is doing that all the time. He's the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he accuses uh, the brethren of before God. They're making a fool of God. you made a mistake. Just like Job. Hey, you a Job only worshipping you because you are blessing him and so on. You stop blessing him and he will stop worshipping you. You see, what happens when a believer takes another believer to the court? Paul says, you make God look like a fool before the angels. Then an unbeliever takes another believer before a civil court to determine a dispute between them. They make God look like a fool and they disgrace the church. Paul says, the Christ-like, godly thing to do in such cases is to take the loss yourself rather than pass it on to God to take the loss before the angels and you refuse to take the loss between in a dispute like this you pass the loss on to god before the angels that's what he's saying it's quite a thing isn't it but paul hasn't stopped there i wish he had because as though that was enough to cause believers to do what god says in this issue he gives a second reason why we should take a loss. And that is, you cheat your brother or sister when you see them before the secular court. Look at verse eight, 7. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Now Remember Paul earlier talked about the difference between a natural man and a spiritual man. A natural man is one who does not have the spirit a spiritual man is one who has the spirit. Paul is talking to the spiritual man. The man who has the spirit of God in him. He says if you had it, you would take the loss yourself. Rather than to pass it on to God. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Now doesn't that go against the grain? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong. And even... And cheat even your fellow believers. Oh boy. Now the three words. Who's doing the wrong? The one who's doing the suing. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are scary verses. Wow. Paul says in this amazing passage, that the Christ-like thing to do in a situation where it looks like the only way out is to take a brother or sister before a civil court to get back whatever is owed to you you should take the loss yourself let the other person be marked as the guilty one the one who is the cheat if you go ahead and initiate the court action to, lead to a suit, then you are the guilty one, even though you may be the one who is wrong. In other words, if you don't behave like a Christian in this situation, you could be the one who is sinning, even though the person might owe you the money. Wow. Now do you see why the Bible says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways? As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways, my thoughts above yours. None of us will go this way naturally. No man, all this money, no way. No way. I can get no way. And I don't only want what he owe me. I want a little bit of interest. I going to make sure he pays the cost. I want to make sure I ain't going to lose nothing. Paul says you've already lost before God. You might win the case, but you've lost it before God. Only a person who's truly committed to honoring God in their life at all costs would be able to do this. The natural man or the carnal Christian would die first. Notice verse 9. And again, Paul says, don't you realize, don't you know? Paul is implying that these Christians at Corinth or professing believers will consciously go against what they knew God wanted them to do. They knew it. But they ain't going to take the loss. They'd rather God to take the loss. Before the angels, before the world, they'd rather God to be disgraced and for them to lose a couple of pound, shilling and pence. Now, if there, if there were anyone, and Marissa, when I was doing this, I thought about you. If there were anyone who could be said to be living in sin, it would be these Christians, these Corinthians. Why? Because they were deliberately going against what they knew God required to do. They were going against again and again and again. They caused Paul to remind them of an extremely vital truth that impacted the very essence of their profession as a believer. Paul is going to bring this home in this statement. He says... Don't you realize that those who do wrong, and the tense here is continuous, meaning a continuing to do wrong, a way of life, knowing that it is wrong. And notice now, Paul connects the wrong that they were doing by suing another believer with the wrong of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He connects them. Those who do wrong. The idea is that what they were doing, claiming to be Christians, were characteristic of those who were not Christians and had no part in the kingdom of God. This is his third reason, in fact, for the alternative of taking the loss rather than suing another Christian. He says, in doing so, you are manifesting the traits of an unsaved person, an unregenerated person. Notice what he says. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge, I could put here those who do wrong, because that's the idea. Those who do wrong by indulging in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive. Now, notice this one, or cheat people. You see that? You see the company they keep? None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is using what I call spiritual psychology here. He is saying that everyone who knows that anyone who continually manifests these kinds of lifestyles are not Christians at all. Everybody know that? They have no part in God's kingdom. And he associates the behavior of the Corinthians, if it continues, with this lifestyle. But he does not say that the Corinthians are, in fact, not Christians. He's not saying that. In fact, he's going to say it in a very clear that's not so. But he's going to say, you're sure act, acting that way. Notice he includes in this group those who cheat or defraud others. And that's exactly what suing another believer is. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice the past tense in this passage. Were like that you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, you shouldn't be like that anymore. Implying if you are, boy, how come? If you're still acting that way, then you were not like that way, you are like that. In other words, Paul is saying you shouldn't be like that anymore. Please don't miss the import of this passage. Paul is saying, no one who continually, and this is the idea, shows by a lifestyle, no one who continually indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, who commit adultery, who are male prostitutes, or who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or agree, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. He's very clear on that. And again, I want to emphasize he's talking about a way of life. He isn't saying now that Christians can live like this and then expect to be cleansed and continue to live like that. Mm-mm. You're going to put this in a past life. So what he's saying. However, Paul also makes it clear that all such people can become members of the kingdom of God. How? By being cleansed, cleansed by what? The blood of Christ. Being made holy, consecrated by the Father, made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The entire triune God is involved in this. All the elements required to be born again are included in this verse. The blood of Christ, calling on the name of Christ, the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, the sanctification of the Spirit. All are here. And I trust that everyone here has been cleansed by the blood because you have called on the name of Jesus Christ to save you. And as a result, God the Father has set you apart and because you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. I trust that you... Experience that in your life, and if not, you will do today by placing faith in Him. All the elements in this passage. In summary then, the apostle, God's spokesman to the church, is saying, for the sake of God's reputation before inhabitants of both heaven and earth, in other words, for God's sake, he's saying, for God's sake, select godly men within the church to deal with these issues, or take the loss yourself rather than have God face the loss of respect, honor, and dignity before man and angels. God created the church to glorify himself, not to disgrace himself to the regard of the word of God and his lordship in their lives. That's what He saying. Now, can I possibly say any more than that? Other than to reiterate in the words of the title of our message, to sue or not to sue, should never be a question asked when it comes to settling disputes between Christians. It should never arise. Paul says it brings disgrace to both God, the church, the world, and angels. So I say again, Christians, for God's sake as well as your own, do not sue one another to settle disputes. Now, to help us put into practice this vital command in Scripture. I have spoken with my QC friend to assist us in establishing a standing council of three to seven mature, well-respected Christians, at least one, now they still in process, having legal experience, who will be ready to hear any matter that the pastors are unable to bring to satisfactory reconciliation. Because remember, the process we did last time with the first, the personal discipline, the mutual discipline, and the church discipline, if that all fails, then this is what we're talking about here. The last resort. Now, further information will be have on this, but here is the proposed idea based on this passage of Scripture, and our desire to be true to the Word of God. This is what I call a practical application for members of the incredible body of Christ at Calvary Bible Church that will enable us to fulfill the demands of this passage of Scripture as a church. I propose that we establish what I will call for now a CBC tribunal. The word tribunal means a court of Christian justice for us. us, A court of Christian justice. The purpose is to glorify God by following biblical principles to bring about just reconciliation between members of the incredible body of Christ at Calvary who have disputes that would otherwise be taken before the civil courts for settlement. The makeup of this tribunal, five to seven spiritually matured, well-respected men of known Christian character with at least two having legal, I said one first, two legal experiences as a judge or lawyer, and the senior pastor or other pastors as chosen by the pastoral board. Now the details of the dispute will be presented before this group after going through the process of discipline as we outlined before in our previous messages. A signed agreement between the parties concerned to be bound by the decision of the tribunal will be made prior to the hearing of the dispute and the basis for it going on in the first place. This is what we seek to do. And with God helps and with Brian helps and others, we hope to seek it up. It will be a standing one. And so even right now, if you have any problems along these areas and you are a believer, especially if you're a member of Calvary Bible Church and you were thinking of suing another believer, whether a member of Calvary Bible Church or otherwise, we implore you to get in touch with us. Do not do it until you do it. Get in touch with us. Because we hope to establish this and set it up as soon as possible in order to be obedient to the Word of God. And all of God's people said, Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, sometimes you give us hard sayings in your Word, but we thank you that it is your Word. Help us now, we pray with enablement of the Spirit of God as we seek to glorify you to do what you have told us to do in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.